The gentleman that requested this evening's talk is Paul Paul, and he's one of the uh, uh, lay supporters of the Wat Banana Chant in Northeast Thailand, traveling as Venerable Jayathoro's personal attendant on a world tour. Um, they came to to uh, England. They went to they have a monastery in Italy and in Switzerland. And then they flew over to Chicago, and uh, from Chicago to Washington, uh, D.C., and Baltimore, and so forth, on to California. So he's uh, he seems to be taking it in his stride with <laughs> humor and forbearance. <laughs> Imagine what it's like to travel in around the world for the first time, and you can't speak the language or speak English. But wherever he goes, he meets other Buddhists, and especially uh, oftentimes Thai people. That he's one of the uh, devout lay supporters uh, in from the Bungwai village in uh, Uborn, uh, northeast Thailand. Is a turn of events, isn't it? Where uh, Ajahn Jayasaro, he's the, he's the English monk who lives in Thailand, and I'm the American monk that lives in England. <laughs> and Ajahn Amro is the English monk living in America. <laughs> I went to a conference in Seoul last October in Korea. A World Fellowship of Buddhists, and we only have these little name cards on our robes, and you'd read uh, like Venera uh, Pramaha Bunsong, which is a Thai name, uh, L.A. U.S.A. Or there'd be some Vietnamese monk uh, who'd be some Vietnamese Vietnamese name with a uh, France written underneath, and I was Venerable uh, Sumedho, U.K. <laughs> it was uh, the Buddhism is uh, when we uh, join the order, we kind of relinquish our nationalities. Actually, we uh, one doesn't really know what one is anymore on that level of belonging to a to a a nation or a country. In the past thirty years, I've lived abroad, in uh, either in Asia or in Europe. So. I haven't, I haven't really lived in the United States since 1963, and uh, so that my, say, nearly half my life, half my life has been spent outside the United States, which gives you a perspective on, on the fact that you, you're, uh, 
you've lived in, in Asia and have a bit of in Malaysia and in Thailand and in India and uh, and in, in England. The cultures uh, and ethnic backgrounds, uh, races, all these affect our outlook, don't they? What where the mind is conditioned by, uh, from the time we're born, these various perceptions are put into our minds. We're not born with them. We're not born Americans or British. We, we don't, we, when we're born, the mind is, is empty of, of perceptions. And so then the cultural conditioning, class, race, ethnic, uh, religious values are instilled in us, some quite good, some totally wrong, some disastrous. Some of the racial prejudices or ethnic prejudices or biases, class prejudices. In Britain you have a lot of class, class uh, attitudes, class prejudices. And these are not part of the, the, the pure mind, these are conditioned into the mind. The mind is, is a, before it's conditioned, before anything is instilled in it, then it is, it is the empty mind, pure mind. And so when we're meditating, we're, we're, we're trying to, we're putting forth that kind of attentiveness to begin to return to that purity of being, to be able to realize that again, rather than just be caught up in the conditioning of the mind. Because the conditioning of the mind, even at its best, it just goes on and on and on and on, and we become just uh, obsessed with, with ideas and thoughts and views and opinions, prejudices, fears and doubts and worries, Pursue us. Being educated, say, in a country like this, where people are, most people are literate, they learn how to read and write, we can fill our minds with all kinds of thoughts and ideas, because everything is printed out on paper and, and presented on the television, on the movie screen, or all kinds of mass media provide us with all kinds of information or, or views and opinions, ideas. Some, some of them can be quite good. Much of them are trivial or, or rubbish, trash, that is just uh, even detrimental to harbor uh, kind of thoughts uh, and views and opinions that tend to just create confusion, suffering, division within ourselves and within the societies that we live in, within our families. When we return to the pure mind, the mind unconditioned, then there are no problems because there is perspective. There's, there's, there, there is uh, 
there is intelligence. It's not a, a kind of vacuous state of, of a, a blank, empty void, uh, no intelligence and nothing, nothingness. But when we talk about emptiness, the empty mind, we're, we're referring to the mind that, isn't, that has never been conditioned by anything, and that we can realize through mindfulness. There is true intelligence there, pure intelligence. Wisdom comes from there, compassion. It is not personal. It is not colored with the personality or the ego. It's not male or female. It has no nationality, no class, no race. It has no quality and no quantity. It is infinite, pure, undying. So the aim of the Buddhist Buddhist teaching is to is toward that realization. By using the teachings of the Buddha, then we the teachings are uh, conventions, tools to to encourage us to be attentive, awake, and aware for that realization. When people do, when individual beings realize it, they they often describe it as like going home, or it's it's a state with it's where we're truly at peace, where we're no longer foreigners or aliens, strangers. All the, the conditions of the body and mind are in perspective then. They're no longer the, the important issues of our life. When we don't realize this, then we're, we're like wanderers in a, in a, in a strange land never quite fitting in, a uh, little bit off all the time, looking for something. So we find, uh, I, I used to feel when I, being, uh, I was born and grew up in Seattle and, and lived in a kind of average middle class family that uh, good Episcopalians and, and they were, <laughs> Very nice family, actually. But uh, in spite of uh, say, uh, uh, the social advantages and, and all that that one had, there was a sense of alienation all the time. I mean, it felt like a stranger or an, a misfit. I thought it was only myself. But then as I began to talk to people more and more, and to realize that almost everybody has this problem. Everybody feels like they don't quite fit in, there's something not quite right. One takes it personally at first. I took it very personally. I thought something wrong with me because everybody else seemed to be able to fit in properly. That's how it looked because one never talked about these things to anyone. In my generation, we didn't discuss such issues at all. We were always, it was very much a, a time of of uh, acting roles, uh, trying to to act out the roles that the that the society provided for you. Uh, you didn't look, you didn't introspect, or weren't encouraged to look inward at all. 
uh, and, and males especially, we're not supposed to feel anything. We're not supposed to have emotions. Uh, we're supposed to be sensitive. Supposed to be a kind of hard, macho type uh, creatures that uh, like a reptilian uh, Rambo. <laughs> so you never admitted that uh, these things to anyone. Never one because you. You think they, nobody would understand. It's just because you alone are the, the oddball. I think one of the impressive things I've seen with meeting uh, with my uh, teacher in Thailand years ago, uh, Tanajan Char, was that he seemed to be a human being completely at ease with life. And I used to think it was it just because he was, uh, one would uh, assume maybe, because he, he learned how to be at ease in Thailand. Um, and that he was a highly respected teacher in Thailand, and he seemed quite happy and, and peaceful and at ease there. And uh, I thought, well, I wonder what'll hap- what would happen to him if he went abroad. So in 1976, we we were invited to England. I was curious to see how Ajahn Chah would relate to, to a country that, that wasn't Buddhist. Nobody uh, really knew who he was. In Thailand, I remember, everywhere he went, people were rushing about and arranging this and doing that and, and uh, paying respect to him and, and bowing in front of him. And everybody was being very proper and... and uh, careful about their behavior in front of him. And I thought, I wonder what Ajahn Chah will do when he, gets, when he goes to a country where people might laugh at him or make fun of him or be rude to him. So we had our chance and, uh, and uh, these things did happen. A few rude incidences and, and uh, things did happen during our stay in, in England, 76, but he seemed perfectly at ease in England also because he was at ease within himself. It wasn't an ease dependent upon the conditions or culture or special situations or everybody behaving themselves or everything being uh, pleasant or respectful or right. Uh, the thing that really impressed me was that he seemed to be at ease even when, anything, when everything was going wrong. That really impressed me. Usually one gets panics panicky and hysterical, don't we? It's going wrong, we've got to do something. <laughs> we've got to. And I remember feeling this many times in Thailand, uh, the sense of things falling apart. And uh, Ajahn Chah would always seem to be able to just be totally at ease even when the monastery was falling apart. One time, the, uh, the, uh, the second year I was there, I don't know whether it was because I was there or what, but I mean, I, I created a kind of sensation, actually, by going to live in, in uh, his monastery. Uh, that was, uh, first, was the first Westerner to, to do that, to live with uh, in, in that monastery in, in Northeast Thailand. 
And uh, he, and of course, people were, uh, word got around and, and uh, people were very impressed by the fact that an American would actually take the robe and live in one of the, the toughest monasteries in Thailand. It's very strict. And the food was terrible. It was coarse food. And, and, it, and in those days, it was quite primitive. There was no electricity and not even a proper road into the monastery. And during the rainy season, the road was so muddy uh, that vehicles couldn't even get to the monastery. Most of the people were worried about the diet. They eat uh, kind of, um, in those days, they, they ate very coarse things and, and very basic diet that most people would find difficult to eat. So people began to really, uh, uh, after the second, the second year I was there, many, many young Thai men wanted to ordain at Wat Bapong. So when I, when I arrived, there were only about 22 bhikkhus in, in the monastery. The second year, there were about 40 ordinations, 40 new bhikkhus ordained. And I thought, that's wonderful, you know, to have these monks come and practice. I was quite uh, naive at the time and, and idealistic and, and thought they were as serious about it as I was. Only after the, after the Vasa, which is a three-month retreat season, during the monsoon, a traditional time to ordain is the three months uh, from the, uh, in the monsoon season. After the monsoons were over and the they, that season ended, and then about 39 of those bhikkhus disrobed. <laughs> and I remember sitting there uh, under the uh, uh, Ajahn Chah's hut, you know, kind of, they, they built on kind of pillars and, and with, a, uh, with a kind of uh, cement uh, platform underneath. We were sitting there. And these monks were coming and saying, I want to disrobe, leave the order. And, and I found this terribly depressing. When I found out what was going on, I really found it very, very depressing and, and uh, quite uh, upset by it. But Lumpocha seemed to just take it in his stride. He says, says to them, well, he says, you can all go and Sumato and I will stay here. And I thought, I wouldn't mind that, have him all to myself. <laughs> I began to encourage them to leave. <laughs> but to bring, what I want to, to emphasize this evening is, there's the, the, what we're doing, what I'm trying to, to get across in this retreat is, is, is the way to, to an attitude in, in which you can begin to see what is just the conditioning of your mind. Not to, we're not here to decide whether it's good or bad. I'm not trying to, to pass judgments or blame anyone for your conditioning or say it should have been some other way, but just to recognize what is instilled into the mind and what is the, the mind where there is no nothing, where there is, where there, where there is no thought, but there's still awareness. 
And that's a realization. It's not something you, you get, but something you realize. For example, here in this room, uh, you, you say most, most people would come into this room and not notice the most important thing in this room, which is the space. This, we, we would say most people would come in and just notice the, the shrine or the people, the, the, the size of the room, the shape, the, the decorations, the furniture and all of that and not even be aware of the space. And yet the space is the most important thing here. If there was no space here. And then we contemplate the space in this room, we realize that actually the room is, the, the, the building itself is in, in the space. That the, we think of the space as in the room, at first we, because the, the walls and the, the, the limitations of, of the walls and ceiling and floor give us this sense of space being contained. But actually, when we contemplate it further, we realize that the, the whole building is in space. And if we take down the building, the space will still be here. The space was always here before the building. The building was built, and, and maintains itself so it's ready to, to collapse. These build, this building looks like it's going to last a long time. But it's still impermanent, isn't it? The structure itself, it was built and therefore eventually it will decay. Uh, things come and go. Conditions that, that which we can see or hear, or smell, taste, or touch, think, feeling, all of these, these are what we call mental conditions, physical conditions. So just to acquaint you with the terminology, uh, like the word sankara uh, in Pali, it means uh, is uh, translated as condition. Now, in generally general parlance, we don't. When we talk about conditions, we we don't really give it all that much importance. Contemplating uh, conditions, but in 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 meditation, we are looking at conditions, not in in the uh, way of comparing one condition with another, but with their characteristics, that they arise and cease. That they're, they're the flux, the change of sensory consciousness. The bodies we have are conditions. The thoughts, the memories, the feelings. These are conditions of the mind. Consciousness is conditioned by birth. When we're born, being born means that, that we are then a conscious being. Uh, consciousness implies this sense of, of division, of subject-object. But 
recognize that because of birth, you're here, aren't you? If those that have never been born yet are not here, along with many others who have been born. But, you're, but if you were not born, you wouldn't be here. And you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't hear or smell or taste or touch in the same way you, you do now. So birth is is the experience of conscious uh, of, uh, is is the experience of consciousness. Consciousness is this. It's it's we are we are now uh, say from the time we're born to the time to the death of this body. This is this is the experience of consciousness, and consciousness implies sensitivity. It's a kind of knowing and sensitivity. It's it's uh, uh, there's the feeling. No, a feeling of, of attraction and aversion, pleasure and pain. So our lives, say, on this level of consciousness, we're constantly being attracted or being repelled, being, feeling pleasure or pain through the, through the sense organs, through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, through the mind. We're feeling uh, attraction and aversion, love and hate, Elation and depression, say, through the mind. These are conditions of the mind. And when we don't understand this conditioning, what it's all about, then we are kind of helpless victims of it. If we just uh, caught in the attitudes, biases, prejudices, fears and doubts and worries that have been instilled in us through our cultural conditioning, ethnic background, class, sex, race, nationality, karma. Each one has our own enigmatic, peculiar karma to, to live with. This, this feeling of being an individual, separate. So this realm, the, the conditioned realm that we're now experiencing is a mortal realm. It's the realm of death. So that the, the sensory realm is the realm of, uh, that dies. Conditioned realm is the realm of death. So that we all have to experience death. It's the, the death of the body. We have to experience the loss of loved ones before we die. This is the part of our human experience. Every one of us has to live, I mean most of us will live long enough to see our parents get old and get, become senile or decrepit and then pass away. Or see our loved ones friends, neighbors. This is seeing those that were born die. And we will inevitably meet with this same experience. Death is, is, the, is what we're all, the final experience of this conscious uh, condition. So death is the end of what began or what was born. This is a natural process. 
Now when we meditate, we are not uh, meditating, we're not, we're not trying to get out of it or run away from anything or escape, but understand this, this realm that we're very much involved with, that we're very much uh, connected to and, and limited by, aren't we? It's a very limited realm that we're in. We have to live within the limits of a human form for a lifetime. And at first, when we're born, the, the, the body of a baby is pretty limited in what it can do. It's a, pretty, it's a helpless creature, isn't it? A newborn baby. Totally dependent upon the mother. Can't do anything for itself. Except cry, urinate, and defecate. Other than that, in that we can do the rest of our lives. <laughs> but then as it grows up, as we grow up from babyhood, then we uh, become have this feeling of being independent, take care of ourselves. The vigor, the strength, the, the beauty of youth, the virility, the, all of these things are part of youth. And then as we start getting old, all this starts, we become, we become uh, more limited again. We get old, our, all these uh, youthful energies and, and so forth are, start fading out and we become decrepit, senile, body degenerates, mind degenerates, senses degenerate. We're bifocals now. Still have all my teeth, though. <laughs> Not all of them. <laughs> but, but this is just the, the, the nature of the human, uh, human, uh, human experience. Now, there's nothing wrong with this or bad about it, because it is something that we have the ability to learn from. This opportunity we have, being born as human beings, uh, is not to be despised. Sometimes, if you don't understand it, it seems like a, like a, almost a, like a, some cosmic accident or a kind of meaningless thing that's happened to us, or a bad joke. What's the purpose of it? What's the meaning of it anyway, to be born as a human being? To, to be this sensitive, to be equipped with all this sensitivity and intelligence, just to die, to get old and senile and die and become one of those old people that nobody wants around, wanders around, doesn't, don't know where they are. The things that we love the most will all be separated from us. When we chant in the morning, we, one of the reflections, uh, one of the kind of sad reflections we have is, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Well, that's a pretty depressing thing to think, isn't it? All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And we, we, we reflect on this every morning in the monastery. That's why we're so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Because this is what happens, isn't it? All that we love and pleases us on this sensory realm is we'll be separated from it eventually. And so with meditation we're we're recognizing this. We're not just it's not going to happen to us just by accident, so we're overwhelmed and and totally confused. Because now we have the opportunity to understand at this point in this moment of our life, we're sitting here, this is an opportunity. Say this retreat itself is a is a very good opportunity to understand what life is, what being human is, what what being sensitive is, why we are this way, and it's the value and the, the things that we can learn, what we must learn from this experience as a conscious living human being. Modern life has really degenerated into just a, a, a blatant materialism, a kind of total rejection uh, refusal to look and understand life, it, just trying to control it and, and create a very, an, an artifice, a totally false realm that we can delude ourselves with this false realm. We can, we can live in a totally artificial, almost totally artificial environment these days, can't we? Just looking at clocks and calendars, we don't have to notice the phases of the moon clocks and calendars and timing mechanisms and, and we have uh, the television, we have electricity, we have supermarkets, shopping centers, all the, the, the wonders, the miracles of modern technology. We could just live in a world of, of air conditioning and central heating and uh, electric, electric lighting. We can create a totally artificial view about ourselves and the world we live in. Me and mine and what I think and, and my life and what I want and, and, and just me as the kind of center, central figure that is the all-important one. What I think, if you want to know what I think, what I feel, what I want and my rights and I want to have this and I don't like that and I want to be in control and it's not fair if things get out of control and things go against my wishes. We can be totally centered, ego-centered on ourselves, on our, uh, on our own, on, and ourself is a, is a very limited thing, isn't it? Just me as a conditioned creature, my particular feelings and my particular views and prejudices and biases can be the most important things in our lives. And all of that is, is artificial, isn't it? It's not, it's not the Dhamma, it's not understanding of the way things are. It is, it is the, pro, the, the, the result of conditioning, programming, like a computer. When we talk about pushing, one of the modern metaphors, the, uh, isn't it, in, in modern day uh, slang jargon is pushing your buttons. Like your computer, I push a button and I can get a certain reaction. Because you're merely a conditioned creature. You're operating from conditioning, not from mindfulness and wisdom. So I can flatter you. I can say, you're the most wonderful person in the whole world. You're, 
you're my dream come true. You're my one and only. You're the great. You're the beautiful. Those lovely eyes and lips, beautiful creature that you are. God, you're God's gift to the world. And, and of course all of you would be jumping for joy. <laughs> or flattery and praise and, and this kind of thing tends to, we like that, don't we? we when we want to, to please somebody and get on their good side, we tend to say nice things to them. Bring them nice gifts. Bring forth that which we praise, we, we give them uh, nice things. Or if we want to uh, get some reaction, we can say things that get you angry. Push your buttons usually implies saying the things that upset you, that throw you into a rage, that confuse you. So if, you, if you're someone who's merely operating from conditioning, then you're someone who's, who, who's, who is merely a kind of computerized human being. Push the button and you get the reaction, like the Pavlovian dog. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good uh, simile, isn't it, for modern, uh, modern life. Salivating over a bell, the sound of a bell. Totally... Uh, Artificial, isn't it? With salivary glands usually uh, only, only, only start operating over food. But we can become so out of touch with the natural flow and way of, of life, that the Dhamma, that we become uh, conditioned, corrupted, distorted, becomes complete life becomes distorted for us, confused and complicated through being just a conditioned creature. Now there is a way out of this, and this is this is why we're here, and why we're on this retreat. All of us, our intuitions tell us there is something more to life than just trying to make the best of, of a conditioning we have. Or just maybe, it, we're not trying to recondition you into becoming Buddhists. Isn't it? This is not a, we're not trying to, to convince you to convert to Buddhism and become Buddhists. Just, just to believe in Buddhist ideas and Buddhist concepts and Buddhist values. Just uh, change one, one, one uniform for another. That's not what we're trying to do. What we're, what we're doing, what we're trying to do is, is to awaken you to the way things are, the truth of the way it is. Or most of you have some level of awakening, some intuition that, that brings you, that, that, that brings you to this uh, place to, to sit uh, and practice meditation for two weeks. Means that there is some level, some kind of intuitive awareness aspiration and hope, the uh, possibility at least, that there is something much more to our human experience than just the material values of modern America or modern science or just the, the fads and trends and fashions of, 
of a capitalist system. Humanity always seems to have, even in its most primitive form, this some sense of divinity or some metaphysical reality or ultimate truth uh, in various forms. It can be in various anthropomorphic forms or ethereal forms. It can be in the Christian concept of God or Allah, Jehovah, uh, Krishna and Shiva and uh, so many uh, various say uh, attempts by human beings in various uh, say tribal cultures to try to, to to convey that sense of of ultimate reality that aspiration of the human heart to go home to return to the source to be no longer be caught in just the, the, the reactions of the conditioned realm, the fears and desires that we produce out of just the, the conditioning of our bodies and minds. So religion awakens us or reminds us of this. We need to remind ourselves of, of this because we do forget. So the, the uh, mindfulness, practice of mindfulness, when we talk about mindfulness, the Pali word sati, mindfulness is not really all that accurate a translation of that word sati. In Thai, the, the, it's often translated as ability to remember, to bring into uh, conscious, the consciousness what we are doing, the way it is. Like when we're driving a car, we, we become automatically mindful, most, most people, unless they're really kind of spaced out. But when we're, we're driving a car, we recognize danger. Uh, when our life is in danger, we, we go into automatic mindfulness. Why is that? Because the, the conditions are, are such that we don't have time to, to worry about uh, whether somebody likes us or loves us or doesn't, or worry about paying the electricity bill or anything. When, we're, when our life is in danger, uh, something, some other kind of instinctual mindfulness takes over. We operate in, uh, on kind of a high awareness in order to say, to, to fulfill the instinctual self-preservation tendencies. But where we tend to fall apart, you notice that the neurotic problems and fears and anxieties and the alcoholism and drug addiction and the, the, the modern nightmares that haunt countries like this are produced not from, uh, from living on the edge of, dangerous, of danger or death, but on 
comfort and ease, on having privileges, being middle class and, and having a comfortable home, uh, being educated and, and having rights, uh, political rights. And when you go to third world countries, sometimes uh, you, you, if you've ever lived in a third world country, begin to see that some people just are barely making it. Uh, they have to spend the, their life just trying to, to glean for food, just enough for a meal to provide for their family. They, they can't spend time worrying about uh, whether their mother ever really loved them or not, or whether everything's fair or, or just, or, or these, these kind of, it's only in a more comfortable and secure environment that we have the luxury of growing neurotic. So in, in countries like this, in America, in Western Europe, people are really neurotic. They can afford to be. It's their right. My right to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> One woman I know during the uh, in, uh, English woman was went to uh, Ethiopia during that famine to help with the uh, people involved. And so when she came back, I asked her, I said, must it, it must have been really depressing to see all that, you know, to be to see all these starving people and uh, of compassion. So it's the 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 eight precepts are not forms of suffering. They're they're uh, compassionate standards of restraint for reflection. We're not here, we're not ascetics. In other words, we're not trying to, to uh, torture ourselves or to make ourselves miserable by not eating dinner in the evening or by not being able to sing and dance when we want to. Uh, it's not a, uh, a way of trying to make ourselves miserable and unhappy by not having a good time but they're compassionate standards to be used to, to guidelines for reflection so that we can begin to understand uh, the, the, the things we produce out of fear, out of anxiety and worry and various desires, the endless proliferations that we vomit forth onto the to conscious experience of life and it and it becomes so confused and complicated and difficult. When you, when you see the, the monastic sangha here, it's, uh, it looks to the average uh, person, especially to Western people who are not used to Buddhist monasticism, it all looks complicated and 
And when you, when you try to study the, the monastic discipline, you think, my goodness, it's so complicated, all those rules and all that. It makes life very difficult. But actually, uh, monasticism ends up being simplification rather than complication. When you, when you fully kind of give yourself uh, uh, to the restraint and form and style of Buddhist monasticism, it is a very simple uh, way to live. Not complicated at all. Very clear, uh, very honorable. Very, it, uh, if lived in the right way, then it, it uh, is a, a joyous, brings up a lot of joy into one's experience of life. And so the more you, you incline to simplicity, and that simplicity is through understanding, not through denial, not through rejection or suppression. Because wherever you are, you'll, you'll, have, you'll be sitting, standing, walking, lying, or lying down. You'll be breathing. You'll be feeling. There's consciousness. The, there's the body, there's consciousness. There's the ability to use intelligence with wisdom so that, that our marvelous, our miraculous ability to, to live with intelligence and wisdom and understanding of life is then possible. Because the human form, human beings, we have, we have a choice. We can choose to live out of fear and desire in an instinctual plane. We can be mere animals. We can even become worse. We can become demons. We can become malicious and intentionally evil and cruel and brutal. We can choose to just get by, just get along, putting the least amount of effort just in, in the countries like this, isn't it? It's easy sometimes just to float by in the system. The, 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 the society doesn't demand very much of its citizens, so you can just kind of get along with the least amount of effort a kind of mediocrity. Or you can put that kind of spirit into conscious living where you, you rise up, you learn, you understand, you, you, in, you investigate this experience of conscious, uh, of conscious experience, of feeling, and begin to appreciate the the wonder of our human state, that we have a, we have a choice, we can choose, we can, we can be great blessings, a great benefit, we can be joyous beings, loving, joyful beings rather than obsessed, frightened, fear, uh, jealous, depressed kind of creatures, like things that, like, hungry ghosts or 
creatures, the specters or phantoms that hang around. We can snap out of that mode through understanding Dhamma. So this is the, this is the, uh, the, the again, the, the pattern of the Buddha knowing the Dhamma, the Sangha, those who are living, uh, practicing, cultivating in that way, through right understanding, through knowing the truth of the way it is. So you have all the equipment. You have the body, your conscious, feeling, the conditioning of your mind, whatever it is, whatever way your body is, male or female, young or old, healthy, sickly, whatever uh, your way your mind's been conditioned by life, the cultural conditioning of it, the, the, uh, the way it tends to think and react. All this is changed from personal problems, difficulties, life is unfair, uh, blaming yourself, blaming other people, uh, feeling sorry for yourself, all that, that way of reacting then is transmuted from defilement or kilesa into observing uh, the way it is, the arising and cessation and the ability to abandon, to let go and allow things to cease consciously, to allow, say, your defilements, the negativity, the anger, the resentment, to actually witness and observe its end, its cessation, through being conscious, aware, wise. And as you, as you begin to appreciate this way of, of understanding, then you, uh, it increases your faith in the practice of Buddhist meditation, because you do see there is suffering and there is no suffering. So the, these first three days, uh, just be patient uh, with yourself, with the others. Uh, whatever, you ex whatever you're expecting from this retreat, notice what the kind of hopes or views or fears, dread you might be having about what might happen or what you want because may, many of you have been on other retreats with other teachers and, and then you, maybe you, your idea of a retreat is, is something other than what you're getting here. So you can notice that, that uh, just the, the, the way the mind uh, can create a problem about wanting something that's not here wanting this retreat to be like some other retreat. Remember one time at Santa Rosa, I had a, a retreat at Santa Rosa, I had a man there who didn't like the way I taught at all. And he sat there, <laughs> wouldn't even come for an interview. He used to write me nasty little notes pinned to the bulletin board, <laughs> saying, you talk too much, and 
and I, I only have two weeks a year for, for meditation, and I came here to practice and have some peace, not to listen to you, and things like that. He's been practicing a certain method, uh, and, and that's what he wanted to do. And there's no way he was going to observe this attachment, this kind of selfish, it was nasty, wasn't it? It's just, just being nasty. It's, a, it's an ugly state of mind when you're thinking in that way, isn't it? If you, if you look at yourself when you're thinking, I don't like that, and you really observe that feeling, it's, that's dukkha. That's, that's the first noble truth to understand, not to believe. <laughs> Not to believe it, what it what it what it's saying. In uh, uh, encourage uh, encourage uh, encourage you very much to like in a in a situation like this where you are in a in a Buddhist monastery. Uh, the the whole set, the kind of feeling uh, the the uh, ambience of the place is one dedicated towards awakening and supporting virtuousness and realization of truth. And the, the kindness, the generosity, all this to be, not to be taken for granted, not to think that it's our right to have all this, or that to think in terms of, of uh, what I want, but began to open to the goodness, the the, the kindness that has been extended to us here, and to uh, delight in it. That will help support your practice, to bring some brightness into your conscious experience. Or if you're just dwelling on, I don't like this, I don't like that, and I wish it were like some other thing, and then, then you'll end up just feeling, uh, you'll just be caught in a, a negative uh, pattern and, uh, and then, of course, suffer terribly because life isn't the way you want it. <laughs>